Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. We're live. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome uh, to B-Sides and Merry Christmas, even though it's the day after. I'm still in the Christmas spirit. Um So we were in Isaiah 9 on Sunday, which means we'll be in Isaiah 9 today. Uh, and one of the questions uh, I had heading into uh, preparing for Sunday is the global phenomenon that is Christmas. <laughs> like every, like I, I, saw, I saw on Twitter this morning um, an Arab newspaper uh, that said Merry Christmas on it. I think it was Saudi Arabia, maybe, that that Christmas is sweeping through uh, Islam right now. Uh, and they're talk, talking about the birth of Jesus. And interesting, you know, they they think Jesus uh, was a prophet that, um, that wasn't the Lord, but he was a prophet. And they think the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, tampered with his life's work and you know deceived everybody and all that sort of stuff but interesting even even in islam uh christmas is starting to sweep through and i started to think about this why do we celebrate christmas every year and with the spectacle that we do and of course at the most basic level we celebrate christmas every year because it's jesus's birthday <laughs> and us humans uh we like to throw parties on people's birthdays that we love. We like to celebrate birthdays of people that we love. I mean, as Americans, this shouldn't be too shocking. I mean, uh, February 20th, every year, we celebrate President's Day, Washington's birthday. We celebrate admirable people on, on, their, on their birthday. But thinking about the church, the church has lots of different holidays. We have Good Friday, which, of course, is the cross. We have Easter, a celebration of the resurrection. We have Pentecost, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit. But unlike Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, there's just something different about Christmas. Why? What, what makes Christmas so different to us than all of our other Christian holidays. Why is it that we might forget that it's even Pentecost Sunday, but the day after Thanksgiving, most of the church is getting ready for Christmas. We spent a month in anticipation of Christmas. Most people don't do that with Easter. I don't know anyone who does. Sometimes you put out some, you know, Easter decorations, but there's just something about Christmas that's different. And so I, I was thinking about this, and I started to get a little alarmed. And I'm thinking, is it Santa Claus? <laughs> do, do we really get that jazzed up anticipating a fat guy in a sleigh? Is, is that what this is? And for a while, I was really starting to get concerned that our joy in Christmas may be rooted in the paganism, that, that paganism has weaved itself into our celebration and that 
those roots of paganism are what we're excited about. Maybe we inappropriately celebrate, but uh, I just have not found that to be true, uh, largely. You see, many of us have been told that, that Christmas, that the, that the reason December 25th was chosen to celebrate Jesus' birthday is because December 25th was a pagan holiday. It was a pagan week, the pagan celebration of Saturnalia. Uh, Saturnalia was the worship of Saturn, and and the reason December twenty fifth is because it was the it was the 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 days started to get longer around December twenty fifth. Uh, but but fun fact, it's it's very likely that the reason Saturnalia was worshipped so vehemently, so strongly, predominantly in Rome on December 25th is because the pagans saw that the Christians were celebrating Jesus's birth on December 25th and they wanted to put an end to the Christian celebration of Jesus's birth. I know this is very different than, than if you're familiar with the subject, but it's very possible that the Christians celebrated Christmas in such a spectacle first and the Romans in fear that they were that that they were losing their national identity in their Greek gods, and Roman gods, that they then tried to turn December twenty fifth into more of a Saturnalia festival to push back against the Christians. And think about it: the majority of the early church at first were Jewish, and Jewish life rotated around feast days. So it makes sense very early on in the life of the church for the birth of the Son of God to become a day in which the church celebrated. And we have evidence of this, of Christian celebrations in Egypt and Africa in the second century. So uh, within a hundred years of the letter of Jesus' death, we have records of Christmas celebrations. We have evidences of it all throughout Europe by the fourth century, before the Christmas tree, before the sleigh bells, before Perry Como and Bing Crosby, the church was captivated by Christmas. There, there is just something about the birth of Jesus that the Holy Spirit stirs in his people. And fun fact, did you know why? Do you know why we decorate our houses and our Christmas trees with lights? Actually, Martin Luther uh, started that. He said, he said it was good that we decorated our houses and our trees with lights because our Father is the Father of lights. And he wanted everyone's home, he wanted everyone's living room to shine in remembrance of God's glory that, of course, was there at the announcement of Jesus' birth. And do you know why we put a star on top of the tree? This one's not complicated. It reminds us of the star of Bethlehem that... The Christ was born, and the presents are under the tree, that it is underneath the star that the true treasures lie. Again, <coughs> you know, thinking about these things, it's, oh no, this is deeply Christian. And let's push the other way. What if Saturnalia was first? What if December 25th was a pagan festival that the church co-opted into a Christian holiday? Let's go that way. Maybe because that, that may be the way that it was. Should that bother us as believers that 
December 25th used to be pagan? And no, <laughs> it shouldn't. Because we used to be pagan. God is in the redeeming business. He's in the refurbishing business. Do you know what Thursday, the origin of Thursday is? It's Thor's Day. Our, our days are based off of Norse uh, gods. And we don't think about any of these things. And the reason why is because the church has overcome the paganism. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, I, I think about, I think about Halloween. You know, how much of the church hates Halloween, and I understand. The, I understand. Someone feels like they they shouldn't have any part of it. No problem. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but how cool would that be if the Lord tarries for a thousand years? If in a thousand years, uh, Halloween becomes you know a, a Christian holiday, kids get dressed up as biblical characters, and you know, hand out Bible tracts. Who knows? But that could have been what how Christmas began. <laughs> it could have been so pagan, and then eventually Christ overcame. Uh, the light grew in the darkness. And so, as, as Christians, we need to think about these things. And and again, seeing that, that Christ overcomes. And so, I, I am pro-December 25th, <laughs> uh, celebrating Jesus' birthday. Though he probably wasn't born on December 25th. That's just the day that they picked to celebrate. Uh, now, uh, our text today is Isaiah 9. Uh, so we're, we're in Isaiah 9 today. And before we jump in, uh, we, we have to remember that before, when, when the Bible was originally written, it was not written with verses or chapters. So when I say turn to Isaiah 9, if I said, hey, Isaiah, I, if I was talking to the prophet Isaiah and I said, oh, I love Isaiah 9, he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's what he would say. He would have no idea. Well, <laughs> Leading up to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we have Isaiah chapter 8. And Isaiah chapter 8 is the context through which we should read Isaiah 9. And Isaiah chapter 8 ends by telling us that the 12 tribes of Israel, that the house of Jacob will be in deep spiritual darkness. So, so leading up, leading up to this prophecy of this coming child, God lays out the darkness that is over the house of Jacob, that the 12 tribes of Israel will be in a deep spiritual darkness. They will hate God and they will hate God's king, it says. But Isaiah 9 comes forth. Uh, and begins by telling us, however, there, there will come a time when God's favor will come upon northern Israel, specifically upon the region of Galilee. And remember, the region of Galilee in Jesus' day what was, was a place for both Gentiles and the poor and the outcast of Israel. Uh, and even throughout all of Israel's history, it just was a melting pot of people. And if you were holding to, you know, the, we are sons of Abraham, well, imagine a region that's 50% Gentile and there's pagan influences there. It just was always the disdain of Israel because it was a border town. Um, it was, it was Tijuana. <laughs> it was right on the border and just crazy things were always happening there. It sat on the Via Maris, a trade route. 
so it just, and it was always the first to be invaded. It was the first uh, province to be taken into Babylonian ex- uh, exile uh, when, when Babylon and Assyrians came through. Uh, it's often the first to be attacked and invaded by foreigners. Uh, and they were now, though, according to Isaiah 9, amongst the spiritual darkness in Isaiah 8, to be the first to receive the favor of God. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and his ministry started in Galilee. And so heading into Isaiah 9, we learn that Israel will largely reject God and his king, which should remind us of what psalm? Psalm 2. Behold, I have set my king on on Zion. So there's the Lord and his anointed. Uh, And then, you know, Isaiah 9, 2, God reveals that the Gentiles and the marginalized of Israel will then believe in God and his anointed and his king. So we have a prophecy here that's heading into Isaiah 9 that the majority of Israel is going to reject God and his king. But it is the marginalized and it is the Gentiles who will receive him. Uh, so that's what's happening as we head into Isaiah 9. Let's let's read it. <coughs> and verse 1, word 1, should tell you that we need to connect Isaiah 9, 8 to Isaiah 9. But. <laughs> so Isaiah 9 begins with a but. That the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel, would turn against God. But. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. I love this passage of scriptures, particularly if you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah, that's Christmas, so I get to talk about Handel's. Um, it talks about the people walking in darkness. So when you listen, when you listen to um, to the composition there, uh, it sounds like you have people teetering in darkness, like stumbling around, and they're trying, like they're lost. And then all of a sudden, this light bursts forth. The whole tone of the song, uh, it shifts. And the people have seen a great light. It's this really glorious section in in, in that oratorio. Um, but anyways, I just, I just love that verse. Uh, verse 3. Uh, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So... The nations, as if the food has finally come through after a long winter, that's how the nations will receive Jesus. As they are glad when they divide the spoil, they are celebrating as if they have finally won a long war. For the yoke of his burden and the staff uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle talmud and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. You know, and I talked about this at, you know, somewhat length on Sunday that in Christ, the fighting between peoples and cultures stops and should stop. <clears throat> um, something I wanted to get into, but not, not necessarily around all the kiddos that were in there 
you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear it said that Christianity and Islam are similar. You know, you hear that argument sometimes. And that's just not true. You could, I don't know if you, I don't know if you hear my kid yelling for me. <laughs> my kids are home from, uh, uh, uh for Christmas break and the one's yelling for me. It's so sweet. He's going, daddy, daddy. Um, sorry. I love my kids. <laughs> the apex. Sometimes you'll hear, uh, sorry, I've got completely derailed. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it said that Christianity and Islam are similar, but again, that's just not true. And one of the ways we know that's not true is by we look at the two leaders, the, the apex of both religions. So the apex, the pinnacle of faithful Islam, of being a true servant of Muhammad, is to act, or, or, or of Allah, is to act, to be a true servant of Allah, is to act like Muhammad. And who was Muhammad? He was a warlord who killed his enemies. He did raiding caravans and slaughtered lots of people. But when you look at the apex of the top of Christianity, who are we to be like? We're to be like Christ. And what was what did Jesus act like? He died for his enemies. So we have Muhammad who killed his enemies, and we have Jesus who died for his enemies. You can't find a more different religion. And that's the point. This is Christianity. It's contending for peace. It's it's not putting on war boots for God. It's burning our, our war boots. It's burning our garments rolled in blood as fuel for the fire. Then verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. You know, <coughs> occasionally, you'll find Christians who want to get Christianity out of politics. And I get it. Believe me, I get it. When I come to church, I don't want to attend a Trump rally. <laughs> I don't. Uh, and when I go to a church, I don't want to attend a DNC convention. And talk about, you know, all, all of these political points and pundits, and I just, that's not what the church is. Um, but what we see here, plain as day in Isaiah, is that the government shall be upon his shoulders. And what we see here in Isaiah 9 is that the, the first promise of this given son is a political statement. His people, whoever joyfully receive his good news, who have burned their war boots, will vote, organize, and run their countries to the glory of God. And, and I just, I just want you to think about this. We don't have a lot of stories of Jesus's birth. We don't have a lot of stories of his early years. But it's almost, almost half of the stories that we have of Jesus in these early years are political. I mean, immediately in Matthew, immediately in Matthew, the wise men are hired by Herod to find Jesus. And now these people have a decision to make. Do they offer allegiance to Rome? or to this baby in a manger. And immediately in Matthew's gospel, we see the wise men, the kings of the east, bowing allegiance to Jesus's kingdom over Rome. And Herod, when he finds out, freaks out. 
And immediately, once he freaks out, Herod sought to kill the baby. He wanted to kill Jesus. Why did Herod want to kill Jesus? Because Jesus was a legitimate, legitimate threat to his kingdom. Immediately upon Jesus' birth, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is coming to overthrow the old kingdom, the old guard. <laughs> Loved ones, first of all, the, the nature of Jesus Christ is very political, and not in the sense of the Republican Party, Democratic Party, but political in the sense that God wants say in what happens in earthly politics. He wants to be Lord over earthly politics. Jesus was not just born into this world to simply capture the hearts of men. He also came to overthrow governments, <laughs> to pick them up and put them on his shoulders so that there may be peace and justice and righteousness. Because God is good, he wants to overcome bad government. Praise God! You know, as Americans, we think we have it pretty good, but... It, as we can see, it's degrading and getting worse and worse and worse. Can you imagine our government without any corruption? Can you imagine what that would be like? <laughs> you imagine a justice system that was perfect? Jesus wants to bring his wise counsel, his biblical counsel, his lordship into every facet of our lives, and that includes our governments. And as Christians, we should desire them. You know, I think of I think of um, the story of William Wilberforce. He he signed the Abolition Act of eighteen oh seven, and he 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 worked for British Parliament, <coughs> and he got radically converted. And the story goes. He knew a famous preacher lived in London, and he knew he needed to talk to him. He just got saved, and Wilberforce was a young man who worked in British Parliament at this time, and he didn't know what to do with his life now that he was saved. <clears throat> and as the story goes, he circled the block twice of this preacher's house, and he finally built up enough nerve to knock on the door, and the man who opened the door was John Newton. John Newton was the pastor to William Wilberforce. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And Wilberforce kind of spilled his guts and let him know that the struggles he had, uh, the concerns he had, and he said, do I need to quit Parliament? Should I become a missionary? Should I become a pastor? And John Newton gave great advice. He says, if God has placed you in Parliament, and I'm, this is a rough, you know, just summarizing, if God has placed you in Parliament, stay there. Be in Parliament to the glory of God because we need Christian men in leadership there. Uh, and the same thing's true with, with our country. We, we need godly men in positions of leadership to run a godly country. <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, I was thinking about the promise I said on Sunday of, of, I, of the, the, the song in Philippians. That in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Eventually, all governments are going to come under him as the supreme uh, commander-in-chief, so to speak. That's where this is going. And so, loved ones, God did not just come to change the hearts of men. He also came to change governments and culture. And God's people are to be part of that. We're to vote according to our Christian consciences. You you know, we, 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 we can't take... We can't take our Lord, and when it comes time to vote, put him off to the side. No, he is our Lord, and he 
He commands, he dictates, he tells us what's right and wrong. We, we, we can't vote appropriately apart from Christ. And so, you know, there's an element here that, yes, we, we want to keep, we don't want the church to become a political rally, but at the same time, we want to bring the kingdom of God into all other political systems. We want the kingdom of God to rule and reign because apart from Christ is chaos. We need Christ in our government, and we're seeing exactly what happens when we remove Christ from government. Things are getting really, really bad. And so we're seeing what happens when we truly separate church and state, when we truly separate Christ from country. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a very scary thing that's starting to, to happen here. Uh, let's keep reading. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You know, one of the things I, I, I think about um, is, is God between the two testaments. You know, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say the Old Testament God was the mean one or that the Old Testament God was the mean one, and the New Testament God is the nice one. And so people read the New Testament. But, but that's a complete misunderstanding of who God is. The same God who died on the cross for the sin of the world is the same God who flooded the world to Noah's day. And if you don't believe that's true, that means you don't believe what Jesus says in the New Testament. He says, I and the Father are one. And so, you know, this is one of the great apologetics against people who say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't talk about sexuality, or Jesus doesn't talk about uh, this or that or this and that. Uh, but, but we have to remember that Jesus, everything that was said in the Old Testament by God, that was Jesus. He was with the Father in complete harmony and unison. That yes, Jesus did write out these laws in Leviticus. Yes, he did write out these laws in Numbers. Yes, he was behind the sermons in Deuteronomy. Uh, and so we, we, we can't separate what God has joined together. Uh, and he never separates the two testaments. And uh, just as a little tangent here, um, you know, I, I have a red-letter Bible. I have lots of Bibles, uh, and I like the red-letter Bible because sometimes it's a little easier to see when Jesus is saying something. And if you don't know what a red-letter Bible is, the words of Jesus are in red. Uh, but I, I, thinking about it, I, I'm not sure. If Jesus had a choice, I don't think he'd put <laughs> a, a red-letter Bible. Uh, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but everything the Father said, Jesus says. They're in complete agreement and harmony and unison and we don't want to separate only the red letters is what we live by because those red letters if we were going to put uh jesus in, in, in red it would be everything god says in the entire bible in red because of course i and the father are one and isaiah here prophesies that this coming child is also the everlasting father um and then it says he's prince of peace verse seven of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. <coughs> yeah, Isaiah 9-7, uh, uh, very much connected to uh, Psalm 2 here in the background. Uh, that, that God is setting his king to rule the nations. 
uh, kiss the sun lest you perish on the way, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And again, we're, we're seeing, <laughs> I believe Jesus is going to return. And I think when Jesus returns, there's going to be a lot of evil on this earth. I do. But we also have to understand, according to the Bible, that God's kingdom will grow. It will advance. There will always be a remnant. Always. From this time forth and forevermore, the kingdom of God that Jesus brought into this world will bring justice and righteousness until eventually it overtakes the whole globe. Now, my post-millennial brothers think that the church is going to accomplish this, and that's a beautiful thought. Um, I, I'm of the persuasion that Jesus is going to return and in the millennial kingdom going to establish this government uh, in perfect harmony. But, but even before the return of the Lord, even before the millennial kingdom, the church is on the move. That's how God has designed it. So that souls may be saved, that governments may be changed. And this will continue from this time forth and forevermore. And then our last little section here, and I, I hit this pretty heavy on Sunday. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And God's going to do all this because he loves us. <laughs> because he's passionate. That word zeal there is like a husband's jealousy for his bride. You know, one of the things, I've shared this before, but one of the reasons Oprah left the church is she was in a church service, and the topic was on the jealousy of God. That God is a jealous God. And Oprah Winfrey, who heard this, said, I don't want to worship a jealous God. And so she left the church. But here we see in Isaiah and all throughout the Bible that God's jealousy is not a bad thing. It is because God is jealous for us that we're saved. <laughs> if God wasn't jealous for you, if he didn't want you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be saved. Jesus wouldn't come. What, the Jesus is, God's jealousy for us is one of the most glorious truths of the universe. That God wants us. He wants you. He wants me. Me, of all people, he wants me. And so the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God wants us. He's going to establish a government without end because God wants the nations for his inheritance. And he will have them. Only a matter of time. He will have them. And we, of all people, believers, get to partake in that. And advancing his kingdom, we get to go, therefore, to the ends of the earth, baptize, teach them. <laughs> well, let's pray, huh? God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for this, um, for this word. We thank you for your prophecy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you want to take politics into your own hands, God's God, because that will lead to the betterment of your people. <laughs> God, I want to live in an earthly government that is run by you. I do not want to live in a government ruled and ran by wicked men. 
So God, we ask that you would raise up godly men and women into the positions of power in our government. God, we ask that you would save our country and that our war boots and bloody garments may be burned as fuel for the fire, not only nationally and on a, on a federal scale, God, but also within our own lives. May your peace and counsel and wisdom win out in our own families. And we love you, God. We praise you. We ask that you be with us now and may you be glorified. And in Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. Merry Christmas. Uh, I'll see you soon. Love you. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.